right? And because one thing I've, I've learned over my career, especially as it relates to customer feedback and insights is people want to know what customers are doing, right? It's very rare that somebody just goes, I don't care what customers say, right? We, we all have some awareness that customers are the ones that pay our salaries. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. Welcome to this episode of the Human Insight Podcast. For many Americans, the Memorial Day weekend marks the unofficial start of summer. Think of family vacations, grilling in the backyard, swimming at the pool or the lake, and enjoying the longer days. It's also the time where we start to see and hear more advertising and other brand messaging for things like travel and outdoor activities, yard and home improvement projects, and even events such as Pride Month, the 4th of July, and going back to school. But consumers are also living amid the third year of the pandemic, rising inflation and gas prices, the Russian-Ukraine war, and other national and global violence and issues. So we wondered, what advice do people have for brands to consider so that they can be both human-centered and innovative as they advertise between Memorial Day through early fall? Here's what they had to say. Like I already said, inflation, um, people are wanting to go out and experience things. We spent two years not doing as much. And so now we just want to get out there and do stuff, but now everything costs so much more. And, you know, you always, you only get like 17 summers with your kids. And I feel like we're feeling like we're being robbed of part of our kids' summers. And so we want to give those kids some a memorable summer, but we're also realizing that it's going to be more expensive. Uh, I think they should recognize that like, um, you know, money is really tight for a lot of people and everyone's just kind of on edge with the pandemic and like with the shooting today and, um, you know, the war in Ukraine. So I think they should just be very real, very authentic, uh, very genuine in like their mission and values and what they're all about. And I think people are really responding to, kind of mission and values these days more than any time else in history. You should consider it all. Um, you don't want to alienate anyone. It, it, as an advertiser, you want to bring as many eyes and ears to the to a product as possible. So it, it, in, in terms of just business, you want to be all of those factors would come into play. Um, but you're going to understand who are you affecting greater because that's what the bottom line comes down to. Who is going to be the greater good for you? I think to some degree, uh, you know, when I when I read those things, the pandemic, inflation, global conflict, politics, race, inclusivity, all largely important um, and not not good to shy away from. I would say it depends on the brand, though. Um, I think people have heard so much about all those things. Um I'd rather just get a, a, a good, um, you know, a good creative laugh and kind of get kind of get lost forgetting about all of the things that are going on right now. I think the biggest thing I would look at in terms of the pandemic and inflation and what's going on is just 
the brands would show inclusivity. Uh, you know, they would have to relate to me. They would have uh, people that uh, it's not just uh, one, one group, but, you know, it's really uh, showing inclusivity in, in the campaigns. Uh, and I think that, you know, to me would, would be some of the factors that I would look at. I think it's increasingly important to keep embracing diversity in your imagery. So going back to what I mentioned before about the four years ago, the Weber grill, to have people of every age, gender, and race in those images so that it feels like it's more inclusive and sort of paints a picture of what I think we all should want, and that is to be, you know, have an equal opportunity in life to get these these products or this service that are being sold. I think that's the most important thing. So, I mean, obviously the fact that we're in a recession after the pandemic, that's something that I think you have to be cognizant of. Um, you know, people are struggling. Prices of prices have gone inflation, as you said, but prices have gone up. The cost of gas, just cost of living. Um, you know, I don't think um, pay has has increased for a lot of people um, compared to the cost of goods and services. So, um, I think just that people aren't going to have a lot of money, but people are looking to connect with. With other people, people are looking to get back to normal as possible. Um, and then obviously, um, just in light of everything that's happening um, in our country, but then our world, um, it's just a it's a challenging time for a lot of people. And so I think just a sensitive, you just got to keep in mind the sensitivity of, um, you know, just that um, at, in homes people are struggling, but then also there's just, you know, there's a, a war going on that's, devastating there's school shootings there's you know massacres at grocery stores and things like that and so there's just a lot it's it's kind of a heavy time um and so i think just a sensitivity to um where where we are as a nation and honestly even bigger than that as a world wow it is a challenging time for everyone the insight i heard were around the themes of inflation and and rising costs inclusivity, connection, and on the other spectrum of that, escape. As a mother, I definitely connected with what the first contributor said about only having 17 summers with your kids and wanting to create positive memories for them. This could be an opportunity for a brand to bring back nostalgic memories, such as Coca-Cola's Summer Tastes Better campaign from 2021 that included short poems on the bottling that evoked the feeling of summer. It could also be a chance to highlight a DIY project or low-cost alternatives for consumers. Finally, a brand could look to highlight opportunities for connection and how people can connect with each other, their families, their friends, and their communities. What takeaways did you have? Now, on to our interview. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today we're very excited to have Adam Thomas joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Adam is a lead product manager at Smart Recruiters, as well as a speaker, consultant, and technologist focused on strategy, team organization, and product management. Thanks so much for joining us today, Adam, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Janelle. So you've had a lot of great experiences within product management. 
In your opinion, what do you think a product manager's role is within a company? Yeah, after about 15 years of doing this, I think it boils down to this one sentence. Ready? I'm ready. All right. So the role of a product manager inside of a company is it's one thing and one thing only. How do you help the team slash organization slash company around you make better decisions consistently? That's it. It's not about what you put out, right? Product managers have no discrete output, right? We don't put out code. We don't put out slides. We can do these things. Um, but for the most part, if you're in an organization that does that, probably uh, either very small startup or it is a waste of your time, right? There's nothing, I, uh, as a former engineer architect in my last life, there is nothing I hated more than somebody from a, a product stripe telling me what the system looks like, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a trap or uh, as a product person coming to the designer and saying, you know, I think the interaction should look like that. Mm right? Um, you're not a designer. You're not an engineer. You're not a salesperson. You're not a marketer. You're a product person. And your product person job is all around decision science. And again, the shortness of that is how do you help people around you make better decisions consistently? Got it. So making better decisions consistently, what's the input for that? Or I'm sure there are multiple inputs, but how how do you arrive at a place where you are confidently making better decisions? Do you ever? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, I think in truth, it, it requires a comfort of the unknown and the ambiguity, knowing that, right. I, I love that you were used that word confidence, right? You're never going to be hundred percent sure. It's not a binary decision. Um, you have to be confident in this ambiguity and then going without ego to talk to as many input or as many sources as possible to try to create uh, a cohesive picture, one that you can share broadly, right? The idea is to get everybody playing on the same field as much mm -hmm. as possible. And from there, then everyone can take their expertise and then apply it to what the game that you're playing, right? And you may translate game into strategy. Yep. I get it. So, um, Tell me about bringing people along. Um, you mentioned it's the product person's role to go have conversations, talk to people, perhaps share that back. I mean, I know it's probably asking the obvious, but like, who are they talking to and what are they bringing back to the team? Um, what, what do you, you know, you've seen a lot of product teams, worked with a lot of product teams. What's, what's best practice there? Uh, every, you talk to everybody, right? I, but I, I think in um, when I, I talk to PMs, right, in my organization or or in others, right, uh, the trick is to find ways to grab inputs from everyone that has stake in the decisions that are being made within your particular area. So it's very easy for folks to get hung up on thinking about people that have direct stakes, the people you see every day, your designers or your engineers or your bosses. Like it's easy to go and say, I have to talk to the CEO once a month, right? Easy. Not so easy to realize I have to go talk to support or I have to go talk to marketing or I have to go talk to customer success. These end up being traps, right? Uh, for folks, because 
your job really is about decision-making, right? And bringing folks along on that ride. And so when you take these inputs from the people that have stakes in your decisions, you take it all in and you start to craft what the story is. Because as human beings, we really interpret story well. You pull mm-hmm. it into to metaphors and uh, allegory or however you'd like to do that and start telling that story back, right? If it starts to resonate with people and people start to repeat things back to you over and over and over again, you're starting to get somewhere where you have real alignment. There is a, a trick, a mentor of mine uh, named Chris Butler, uh, who's a fantastic product person, um, would tell me, and he would say, go ask three random people that are affected by your decision. What are the three most important things that your team is doing? And if they cannot give you a similar answer, then you're not bringing that alignment, right? It's not there. You're not talking to enough people or um, you're not talking, you're not talking the same story over and over again. So one of those two things you have to go fix. Yeah. That's really interesting. Or you're just not, you know, or the people on the team aren't aligned, right? It's interesting. I've had similar conversations and, and, you know, you mentioned talking to different stakeholders internally, um, but also would love to get your perspective on pulling customer feedback in as well. I always say, you know, if you were to go ask a handful of people in your organization to summarize who your target customer is and what they need from you, if you're getting different answers from those five or six different people, that's a problem. So it's very similar to what you just said around internal stakeholders. So how do you think about external stakeholders and and getting customer feedback? Oh, that's perfect, right? What you just mentioned, right? Like if you don't have an ICP and one that folks are aligned with, and ICP means ideal customer profile for folks, right? If you don't have a target group or idea that you're going after, then it all kind of shatters because uh, sales might be going after something, marketing might be going after something, uh, engineering might be building for something else. And so the story uh, fragments. I think this is what user testing is great for, right? Um, <laughs> not to be the person that plugs the product on the podcast, but um, we're currently <laughs> users, right? Smart recruiters. And going out and talking to customers and collating that information and being able to share that, to start to weave that story. Because to your point, right, there's an internal side and an external side. Both are very important as it relates to building that story for people to follow. And as I mentioned, the game that I mentioned earlier, that strategy on where you want to go, right? You need to have some concept of what's happening outside, what's happening inside, put it together, make a wonderful story and say, we're going in that direction, right? And that's how you set up strategy um, as a product person uh, moving forward and taking that the things that those inputs and creating an output that uh, helps guide better decisions consistently. Mm-hmm. Hey, you've created a framework called survival metrics. Can you explain what that is and and what it does? Survival metrics is a tool to help us get away from sunk cost bias. It's a way for us to take a look at how a product is progressing and make decisions that will help us pivot if needed around three buckets. There is a bucket of stop, the things that will help us stop immediately, right? These are things that we should cut everything off and, and turn off the lights and move on. These are things that uh, there are things that are pivot, 
right? These are things that we should sit down and talk at the next, uh, you know, if, if it's a train, the next station, right? We get to the next station, we'll, we'll sit and chat about it and figure out if we should get off the train, should we change directions of the track, whatever, uh, however you want to uh, go forward. And then lastly, which shouldn't be forgotten is this concept of invest. And so there's nothing worse, I think, as a product manager going to someone and hearing the phrase, oh, if I had just known you were going through that, well, I would have given you an extra three engineers or I would have given you an extra, uh, I would have given you a three extra months or I would have, uh, you know, given you the world if you needed it. You just didn't tell me, right? And so it's important to establish what are the things that are going to drive success and, and more investment into your products. And so the, the trick with survival metrics are these things are agreed upon prior back to your story. And from there, you're able to uh, avoid a lot of the uh, bickering and back and forth that may come up when somebody hears about something for the first time and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa what's that, right? You now have something that you can point to and say, no, we talked about this, right? If we run into this, we're going to stop. And that makes the uh, motion of pivoting so much faster and so much easier. I like the idea of having a framework, right? That helps you back to your point around helping the company make just better decisions, having a framework that helps you make these very discrete decisions about stopping, pivoting, or investing. My next question is what lies underneath that? Like, how do you, what are the things you consider to ultimately arrive at stopping or investing or pivoting? Or is it different so, uh, for, for, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, uh, no worries. And I, I think the end of that question, right, is it, is it different, right? It's always different. It's going it, to, everything is contextual. In coming up with this framework over the last few years, uh, one of the things that I, you know, I, the thing that I hate is conferences, right? And what I call conferences is uh, when somebody gets up on a stage and goes, this is the perfect thing. If you just follow these three things, you will have a perfect product team and everyone can go home happy and your CEO won't be yelling anymore. CEOs always yell. <laughs> so like there's no stopping that, right? Um, I think at the, at the, but at the foundation of survival metrics are, are two things, two foundational things that I think a lot of product people can relate to. And uh, both of these are things that we should keep close, but things we don't tend to, unfortunately. One is the Agile Manifesto, and particularly the fourth tenet, which is uh, responding to change over following a plan. Far too often, as product people, we end up looking at our roadmaps, we craft them, and then we go, well, I guess I'm building this. Uh, you know, whatever happens after that. I don't know, but it's on the thing. We've decided, we've made it. We're going to go ahead and do that, right? Which is anti-agile. We're supposed to be able to pivot based on or respond based on the things that are happening around us. I think it a, it's a core tenet of the Agile Manifesto. And one, mm -hmm. I think most teams should be thinking about as they're building. The second is... Uh, a stat that was thrown out by Dr. Ron Kohavi, uh, ex-Airbnb, ex-Microsoft, ex-Amazon. And he ran innovation for these companies. And the thing that he said 
was 60 to 90% of ideas do not improve the metrics they were intended to improve. In fact, they have neutral or negative consequences. And so let's say you don't even believe the 60 to 90%. Let's say you believe in half of that. How many ideas for those, for folks that are listening, how many ideas have you just said, this is not good enough. I'm just not going to go with it. Or how many products have you rolled out? And you said, "Eh, you know, this wasn't working for us. Um, And we need to to get rid of, right? Um, Both of these things, right? And I think a a piece of that is uh, survival and a piece of that is success metrics. Either way, how often are we not following through on the fact that 60 to 90% of ideas do not improve the metrics they were intended to improve? How often are we actually thinking about that? Or uh, to make it a lot easier, when's the last time you stopped a product? When's the last time you stopped an idea in discovery? When's the last time you uh, uh, recalled a product? When's the last time you you, uh, decommissioned a product? When's the last time you killed something? Because even if, again, if you don't believe those numbers, and again, even if you have them, right, there should be a regular process in which you're doing these things. And so those are the foundational things that this is built on. It's understanding we're not clairvoyant. And in fact, right, it builds on that product sense idea, right? We don't have product sense, right? We have the numbers. We know how successful ideas are on their first try. And inherently, we know this, but we need some sort of way because of human bias to take a look at what we're making and to create these stops, these governors for ourselves and our teams. So we're able to follow through on, uh, you know, the biggest revolution in tech, right? Which is the agile manifesto. Uh, We could actually follow through on these things and think about outcomes over just pure output, pure things that we're tossing out. Yeah. I think it's a good, you know, when you were talking about kind of the framework and the decisioning that kind of goes into it, you mentioned uh, success metrics so I'd love to better understand or perhaps have you share with the listeners, like, in your opinion, are the are survival metrics and success metrics two different things? And if so, like, how are they different? Yes. And I think both are necessary. So what's the difference between survival and success metrics? Well, survival metrics are focusing on the product as it's being built. What is going to allow this product to survive the process of getting out the door and thinking about the things that can affect that, whether that's um, internal politics, whether that's specific data, whether that's speed, whether whatever it is, because our companies are complex systems. So it's important to treat them as such and to bring in the information as clearly as we can to to give ourselves governors. Success metrics are all about how do we know this is a successful project? How do we know this is really affecting the marketplace as something we've built? And so it's important to take a look at that and say, huh, is this really moving the needle? We just spent X million dollars of development time on this. Is this worth the maintenance cost of, of continuing? And so when these two things work together, you start to create a very judicial uh, 
right? A thoughtful system that really focuses on the things that are going to be successful, uh, that 40, that 10 to 40% of things that will really move the needle. And on top of that, for your customers, you create a product that really just, it's all about winning, right? This is where you start to hit, uh, you know, that Kano principle of like really being delightful. Now you're starting to build things that people just really love. And all of a sudden it's, you have a lot of raving fans and it's way less to, to keep maintained. Do you have a, I don't know, an example of something? Maybe it's of a company that you know of. Maybe it's something that is part of your work from the past. Do you have an example of something where it's a product, it's a feature, it's an idea, and you've applied this survival framework to it? And, and, and what the impact of that was. Like, I'd just love to better, like kind of practically give like a, just a, an example. So people could kind of see how it works. Sure. Uh, let's call this company Bobco. Um, and uh, Bobco was going through a terrible streak of, of releasing products. They went from a very, uh, positive balance sheet where they were making money. This was a non-venture-backed company. They were doing very well, and they decided to expand and focus on a whole bunch of brand new technologies. They committed sin number one, which is, uh, uh, you know, they, they, uh, their, their stomachs uh, or their mouths were too big for their stomachs or whatever that saying is, right? Like they just, you know, it, it's, we have everything in their eyes are too big for their stomachs. There we go. Right. Um, and so they started getting and picking everything. So it, what they could do, what they couldn't do, all the new stuff, all the cool stuff. And after two years, they went from a positive, a net positive uh, balance sheet to uh, laying off half of their employees. Right. Just that fast. And when survival, survival metrics was applied to this company, Right. It took some time, some understanding, some learning um, over the first six to nine months of getting an idea of kind of why they made that mistake. It's one big retro of understanding culture and understanding the decisions that drove the company down that path. Being able to institute survival metrics did three things. One, when looking at features, the company... One thing survival metrics really forces a company to do is to be very clear about the story that they're telling. Because if you have things that are, you have, if you have something that somebody can come into a room and say, we're stopping this immediately, right? That stop better be very clear uh, because human nature is, it tells you that everyone's going to go, right? <laughs> they're going to get very upset. Um, and so by doing that, they killed more products in a six months period than they ever had as a company before, right? So we're talking about running lean right here. Um, the other thing is you're going to have to have better communication between teams. Because again, if somebody can walk in there and go, stop, people are going to go, who, do you have the right to say that, right? Which causes a lot of friction. And again, not just for a product manager, but for anybody. And so 
being able to go talk and understand the incentives across a company allowed people to get closer. And from the leadership level, allowed them to see their values being translated into these particular metrics. So an, um, another benefit was a lack of poop and swoop, right? And for those who don't know what poop and swoop is, uh, it's when an executive comes by, uh, usually a product manager's desk, and goes, you know what I really like? I think we should change our pricing page. I think if we, you know, I think we can really hit our goals if we just change our pricing page. I, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's just an idea, just thought, right? And, and some kind of passive aggressive walk away. Um, usually that's like the CEO of the company or, or some high end executive. And then that product manager spends the next two to three weeks really focusing on doing that. And then the CEO comes back around and goes, what about this other project that we were working on? Well, I put that aside for two weeks because I had to work on the pricing page. <laughs> Right. Um, by seeing the values that they think about and talk about when they're talking to the company writ large, relayed in those survival metrics that they see, right? They're visible. It's less of that, right? They know that their values are being applied. And then lastly, right, if you have that visibility from all sides, people get really interested in the data. So if you're a data ignorant organization, you're going to start to become a data-driven and then ultimately a data-informed organization. And the difference between those groups, right? Data Ignorant is an organization that, oh, it clicks, it works, right? Uh, versus data-driven is like, you know, the numbers say that, we're going to go that way, right? Versus a data-informed organization is, we're going to go that way, not just because the data says so, we have some information, some context around why this is important for us strategically. And we have some customer anecdotes that help us understand why the data is going that way. And we're able to tell that story effectively throughout the organization. So by implementing the survival metrics at Bobco, um, the company was able to stabilize and grow, right? They were able to hire uh, in a way that they hadn't been in a long time. They were able to get different products out the door and expand their product portfolio while also getting rid of a lot of the junk that was there prior, like previous, right? They started getting rid of some of the things that weren't bringing in money or, and they started getting rid of the ideas that just didn't work. Uh, and people talked to each other a lot more. And I think the thing that I love seeing when going into their offices was when I first started going in there. Everybody was in their own silos and groups. Leave me alone. One day I walked in and I saw a designer talking to a support person, which never happened before. And I saw a marketer talking to an engineer uh, and a product person talking to an executive. Like you start seeing these connections start to happen um, because people are starting to talk and engage on the same field. They're playing the same game. So they're allowed to bring their best selves, their best skills to the work that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that example. And, you know, thinking about this as just having a common language, I found that, uh, I mean, being in UX, being in design, being in product, whatever role you're in, you have a language and that language often doesn't <laughs> translate to other functions in the way that you think it does. And so having, um, you know, shared vernacular, shared, shared language, shared metrics, um, 
you know, it sounds, it sounds so simple, but I've seen it so many times where there's so much misalignment unless that exists. And that's super big at feature factories, right? Because the focus becomes less about what outcomes are we going after, which is going to cause some sense of control, right? There has to be some uh, some understanding of the value that you're giving out. Value starts, success equals value in an outcome-driven organization, whereas in an output-driven organization, success equals delivery. And so if your success is based on delivery, then all this other stuff is a waste of time. Why, why even talk, right? I have a lot of other things. I have a bunch of things. I got 25 OKRs. I got, I got, a, <laughs> I got uh, a bunch of things over here that I need to do. I got a bunch of features that I promised on the roadmap that I got to go get chipped. And who cares? Who cares about anything else? My promise to the company is I'm going to ship those things. And so all this other stuff goes out the window. And um, what starts off is like, it's like a, a rock hitting your windshield, right? It starts with a tiny crack. And then it starts to spread and spread and spread. And next thing you know, nobody talks and everybody thinks everybody else is the problem. So let's say um, you've developed your survival metrics and you've developed your success metrics. I guess, what's your perspective on how often should you be like checking in on them, making sure are these still the right things for us? Or do you think that those things stay fairly static over time? No, 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 no. These things change, right? Um, you know, success metrics may have a, you know, a, a pretty long half-life. However, survival metrics may not, right? Uh, organizations are complex systems. Things change. New executives come in. Uh, new regulations start to happen. Uh, and so, I think it's important for a team to check in whenever they check in just regularly. So what this looks like in practice is, let's say you have a sprint planning session, perfect time to go over, great, the survival metrics, and just have a quick conversation. Are these still relevant? Is there anything that anybody wants to bring up that may change these things? If so, let's have a quick conversation about them, right? Um, maybe something moved from pivot to stop. Maybe something needs to be taken off completely because it's not important anymore, right? For example, maybe it was important for operations to keep the AWS bill down. But maybe last week we raised a whole bunch of money and they're really trying to push, right? And there's no need to worry about the AWS bill. Actually, we're gonna actually going to go calculate that after because right now we're just really caring about the margins. We're not caring about our initial costs, right? We're, we're caring about uh, what profits we can drive and what we can sell uh, Wall Street on. Um, and so that's a that's a huge change, right? Um, if your survival metrics are around your AWS spend, now that's not relevant anymore. Uh, and so that needs to go. And something can either take its place or not. Got it. All right. I think we're going to move into our, or we are going to move into our lightning questions. Um, so these are questions we ask every guest that comes on the show. Uh, they're meant to be sort of fun and, and fast paced. So here we go. Um, what's a book that you've recently read that you would recommend to listeners? Uh, the Lean Enterprise. That's different from the Lean Startup? It is different from the Lean Startup. I think for B2B leaders, I think it's a lot, a lot, a lot of, of great information there for folks to pick up about how to think about those concepts in the B2B uh, format. And uh, I've gotten to know one of the authors, Barry O'Reilly. 
somewhat well over the last year or so. And, and, and Barry's just the, the well of knowledge, right? Even though that book was written maybe six, seven years ago, it's still very effective. Awesome. Thanks for that recommendation. Um, how about a piece of advice that you might give someone who's trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? Go, go do it yourself for a second. Come back with some really cool insights. Um, make a nice little video presentation and show somebody over 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes, what you found out. Right. And because one thing I've, I've learned over my career, especially as it relates to customer feedback and insights, is people want to know what customers are doing. Right. It's very rare that somebody just goes, I don't care what customers say. Right. <laughs> we, we all have some awareness that customers are the ones that pay our salaries. And so I think the, what comes down to folks, why, why they tend to avoid it is they think it's time, like it's a huge time investment. And so if you show them how cool it can be and what insights you can get in a short time period, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, um, then you can start to do things like, hey, maybe uh, I'm doing some analysis on this. You want to come with me and I'd, I'd love your input. Or, hey, I'm talking to this customer. You want to come on by and you know just observe um, and see what our customers think. Are you? I'm building out this research study. I'd like your feedback on uh, what are these questions that I'm asking, or, or like this is kind of the goal. Of what we understand, does this make sense, right? Um, and you start to pull in people bit by bit, uh, and so uh, you know all these things are just easy ways to to get people excited uh, as much as we are around customer feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of just diving in and exposing people to it versus asking, begging, <laughs> hoping for permission and budget to do it. Um, it's, it's a good tip and, and one that's, you know, again, fairly, you know, it makes a ton of sense, but rarely, you know, do we see that actually happening. Um, when you think about the future of product management, what are you most excited about? I think we're at an interesting precipice with, with product. And we have two choices, right? One, we can go down this professionalization route, which is boring. Who cares? You went to HBS. Who cares? Um, (laughs) That's not to say I I, I don't uh, love HBS. Uh, Actually, like Melissa Perry is a great friend. And I know she's a fantastic teacher of all this stuff. Um, But I mean, in general, right, for, for, you know, professional product people or... We can go down another route. Uh, we can start to bring in a mix of folks because one thing that was true about product before it became this kind of sexy job was pirate was a product was a place where a lot of pirates worked, a lot of oddballs that weren't particular good enough at their jobs, but not great, and not in love with it. And then they found product and they fell in love with it. Um, whether it's a customer success person or an engineer or a designer. And so these are now the folks that are becoming leaders um, and having to deal with people that have this wonderful uh, resume of a whole bunch of wonderful schools on it. But, you know, within a sense of arrogance that come with it, comes with it and not uh, uh, not falling in love with it as we did. And so I think there's an opportunity for product leaders to um, push back on the want of what I call heuristic bingo, 
which is, uh, let me go hire the person that I'm not going to get fired for hiring. Let me go hire the person that went to Yale or um, went to Stanford. No, no, no. They will be fine. I guarantee you there's a place at Facebook waiting for them, <laughs> right? Uh, let's go hire some of, some of the more oddballs, right? Some of the um, people, bring them in for interviews, talk to them, right? Because this is a this is a, a discipline built on apprenticeship, and we can really expand on that as tech grows. And so, for companies and teams doing this with APM programs rolling out, um, I know uh, you know there's a few companies that are, I'm close to that are starting and thinking about this a lot. This is really cool because it's going to bring a whole lot more perspective from people that may not have a college degree but may be perfect for product. And, and that's the opportunity. That's when this is really gets really, really cool. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's, you know, takes a, a page out of the book of making sure that you are, you know, I mean, building a team with diverse backgrounds and perspectives and not hiring everybody from the same school or program, you know, looking at different life experiences that help inform, you know, their perspective and what value they'll, they'll bring to the organization and, and to the product. Um, 100%. Yeah. Thanks so much, Adam, for, for joining me today on the Human Insight Podcast. It was super fun chatting with you and uh, learned a ton. And I, I know our listeners will get a lot of value from this episode. So thanks so much. This was a blessing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks.